All right, brothers and sisters, at this time, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to what I am sure for most of you is a familiar passage. This is, this is a beautiful passage, and uh, I think it deserves our attention, however briefly it may be this morning. Luke chapter 15, as we read this chapter and its entirety. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled or complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided this property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you or have slaved for you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead. And is alive. He was lost and is found. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage and this powerful, poignant story and how it shows us a great picture of your extravagant and scandalous love. Lord, please, even in these few moments, help us to see and marvel at your gracious love for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I am now old enough that I can look back on my life and stand in awe of the handiwork of God, how he has guided, directed. I, I, can, I can think of just wonderful experiences, terrible happenings. I, I, I think of the, the, the wise decisions perhaps that I've made. I, I think of the, the boneheaded things I've done, the, the, the careless words that I've said, the hurts that I've inflicted, the, the wounds I've received. I, I, I can reflect on all this, and it's amazing to me that I can begin to see the thread of grace that has led me and directed me and guided me uh, to this, even to this day here. And in the Reformed faith, we nod our heads and say, absolutely, this is God's sovereign predestination. He has his purpose of election, and by divine decree, he orders all things according to his good pleasure, and he directs everyone's steps, absolutely. But... And those are all true statements, all true statements. But what must not be missed is that we don't have a God who is just aloofly moving chest pieces across a board. He's not just 
in a sterile, disinterested uh, perspective, ordering your life. No, it's, it's important for us to remember, he loves me. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And to say that God is love is, and that God loves you is, is an important Christian truth. And sure, in this day, in this age, the love of God is, is used and abused, but that does not negate the fact of it. God loves you. And as we look at this series that we're in, where we are trying to do more of a deep dive on what it means to say that salvation is by grace alone, I want you to understand that there's a strong correlation between grace alone and the scandalously marvelous free love of God. There's a connection there. And when we affirm sola gratia, when we affirm that we are saved by grace alone, we have laid the foundation for us to truly appreciate and marvel at the awesomeness of God's love for people such as you and me. This, there's many passages of the Bible that assert the facts of God's love. But when I was thinking, what, what is a picture of how scandalous God's love can be? This is the passage that came immediately to my mind. Uh, this, is, this is not intended to be the, the be-end-all sermon on Luke 15. This is a marvelous passage. I want to point out how it serves to point us to the fact that our salvation is solely and exclusively God's grace lavished upon undeserving people, period. And the problem we run into is we fall into this trap again and again and again that makes us think we bring something to the table. Something. There's got to be something that we bring to the table that makes it so that God is more inclined to show grace, uh, that, that, that we're more deserving. I, I, I don't know the word that we like to use to sanitize it for ourselves, but we think oftentimes that we got to prove something first, and that is toxic for your soul. If you think you stand before God even a millimeter closer to the throne because of something you do, then to that extent, God's glory and your delight in him have diminished. Now, this, this passage, Luke 15, is in my opinion one of the most beautiful pictures of the radical free, scandalous love of God for sinners in the Bible. 
And I think this passage is helpful because in reinforcing grace alone, this passage is a great comfort because it reminds us that there is absolutely nothing, nothing that we could do to make God love us less. He loves you. If you are in Christ, you are beloved of the Father. Don't let that be cliche. Resist that. You are loved. And he is ordering all creation around your good. And in the final analysis, the final picture, the final product will be such that every heartache you've experienced, every betrayal you've endured, every disappointment, everything, even the wrongings you did and the discipline you received, all of it will come out in the wash to prove you are this beautiful, finely glorified son or daughter of God who he didn't spare any expense for because he loves you. Okay? Now, in setting, in setting this stage, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 help us get oriented in the right direction. They help us understand what the problem is, and it helps explain what's, what is said in the, par, in the parables. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 begins, like so many chapters in the Bibles do, with the religious leaders upset. Okay, they're upset. The tax collectors and sinners. And these are people characterized by habitually living lives of degradation out of conformity to, to not just the law of Moses, but to all the rabbinical traditions. And they're drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, all the religious leaders, all of the somebodies, they're grumbling or complaining. It's the same word. Complaining is, is really the the right word, but they're not complaining like to Jesus. They're, they're grumbling and complaining about it to themselves, about how inappropriate and how scandalous. And this man receives sinners and eats with them. And have you ever wondered, have you ever bothered to be wondered by the, uh, why does the religious establishment do this? You would think that being religious folk, they would be thrilled whenever people turn and become more religious. I mean, the very next chapter, chapter 16, goes out of its way to talk about how the Pharisees loved money. Well, religious people give more money than non-religious, so you think that from a, from a sheer selfish standpoint, they would, be, they would be happy to some extent, right? But, but consistently, they are bothered by Jesus and his willingness to associate with sinners. And it's, it's not like Jesus was soft on sin. It's not like he said to prostitutes, you keep prostituting. It's not like he told tax collectors, you keep doing you. It's not like he did all that stuff and just said, you keep it up. God loves you just the way you are and is fine with you staying as you are. It's not like Jesus said that. Man, Jesus was hardcore. Think about Matthew, uh, 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 I'm sorry, Luke 13, a couple chapters before, uh, some people come to him and are like, hey, you know, the, the people that, 
that were killed by Pilate's soldiers and their blood was mingled and, and with their sacrifices, were, were they worse sinners than everybody else? And, and a tower fell over, crashed on people and squished them like bugs. Does, does that mean that was God's judgment, that they're wicked sin? And Jesus, the never soft on sin people, his response is, the same thing's gonna happen to you if you don't, par- if you don't repent. So Jesus was not about loosey-goosey, just go do you. He was hard on sin, so to speak. So what was their problem? Well, first century Judaism was not like modern Judaism. A huge difference is modern Judaism is not evangelistic at all. They take converts, but did you know that in modern Judaism, a rabbi has to officially and formally attempt to dissuade a convert not once, not twice, but thrice? And only after the convert passes or persists despite these three, and and talk to me afterward, and I can tell you the convoluted reasoning behind that. But thrice, and, and I know because I used to work with rabbis, and they would explain it. But very unevangelistic nowadays. But in the first century, they loved making converts. They were very evangelistic. In fact, Jesus points this out in, in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, verse 15, he speaks about the great arduous lengths they go to win even a single convert. Because they were very evangelistic. So they're evangelistic. Jesus isn't soft on sin. What, what's the problem here? Well, the problem comes down to Jesus and his method represented an egregious violation of their religious equation. You see, the re- religion of the Pharisees, the gospel according to the Pharisees, so to speak, is formally spelled out by them, but even as I say it, I I hope you will see that this is something we struggle with even if we're not technically Pharisees. And that was this. Only those who have cleaned themselves up can come to God. So the first step, if you want to get right with God is getting right with God in the sense of cleaning yourself up. First step, don't come and talk to me about coming to church until you first cleaned yourself up. Okay? Clean yourself up. And then, after you have jumped through all the hoops, then you can talk to me. Because you have to show God that you are faithful that you will keep the covenant. And so, God then, after you've proven yourself, God will then give you grace, that is to say his blessing, to come alongside you and help you out and make some of your activities less doomed to futility. And Jesus totally inverted this. He did so because he understood that the model they had created for themselves 
resulted in a people who thought they had no need of forgiveness, who thought that having cleaned themselves up beforehand, that they had right standing with God and actually had a leg to stand on in terms of making demands. They would never use that hard of a language, but they would have realistic expectations that they think they could get from God because they've been faithful. And these people don't see themselves as needing to repent. They don't see themselves as needing to continually assess their lives to see where they have fallen short. In other words, they don't need to repent. That's their assessment. And do you see how that mindset, that spirit of Pharisaism is so pervasive? How, my goodness, it seems like more often than not, I've talked, when I'm talking out with people and that there's this mindset that they have to clean themselves up and then come to church and then find God. There's this process. And the number of times that I've encountered believers who they look back at their life of faithfulness as if this somehow has put God as their debtor and that God is supposed to have then given them a stress-free career, or, or God is supposed to have converted my children, or, or God is supposed to have spared me from a debilitating disease because I was faithful. And so it proves, as in the wash, that we are not in awe and amazement that God would love us. Rather, God is our partner. Or God is, our, God is our employer. And any way you dice it, we stand not amazed by God's love. And so Jesus, he wants to break through this shell. He really does. And so he begins by telling two rapid fire illustrations. They're, they're, they're called parables, but they're really short especially in comparison to the story at the end of the chapter. And you need to be careful when you read parables. People get turned sideways uh, and, and go off in crazy directions all the time, focusing on, on little details that, that look, the, the parables have details in them because he's telling a story and you have to have some details just to make it a compelling story. That does not mean that every little detail in the story corresponds to some grand spiritual truth. Sometimes Jesus' stories seem to be commending behavior, but it's not really a, that aspect that's being commended. It's a larger principle. So for example, in the next chapter, chapter 16, he tells the story of the dishonest manager. And that parable famously is criticized because by all appearances, he appears to be commending a manager who's using his position to essentially rob his boss for his own betterment. It's scandalous. Jesus uses details in stories that are utterly ridiculous from a mathematic, the parable of the unmerciful servant. This guy owes 10,000 talents. And everyone who heard that would have went, Pfft. 
because 10,000 talents is one-third of Rome's annual revenue. No person had that kind of money, and no one would lend that kind of money to a person. I mean, it's just a stupid amount. But that's the point. The point is not the realistic feasibility of the detail. The point is he owed a ridiculous, unpayable debt. Okay? So the same here, some people get really turned sideways in all these details. Like he puts, a, he puts shoes on his feet. This represents the gospel of peace. And he puts a ring on his finger. He's welcoming him back. That's what you got to know. Okay? So don't, don't worry about all the minutia. Worry about the quote-unquote picture within the details. And he does tell a remarkable story. That's a profound picture. There are three people at the beginning of chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. There's the religious leaders. That's a person. There's the sinners. That's the second person. And then there's Jesus. Okay? So... Jesus is the one that is on the receiving end of the sinners. They're coming to him. And the religious leaders don't like it. And so Jesus wants to open their minds, open their eyes to the fact that there's legitimate reason to rejoice at the coming back of these sinners. And so he tells the first story about a shepherd who loses a sheep. One sheep out of 100 is a 1% loss, but he, they all know from experience, you go after it because it matters. In this parable, Jesus is the shepherd, okay? And then he builds on that. There's a, there's a lady who has 10 silver coins and she loses one of them. That's, that's a, okay, math, math, mathematicians, what's one out of 10? 10%. Okay, so Jesus is upping the stakes from, from a 1% loss to a 10% loss. And she, she scours the house for it. She doesn't just, ah, I still got my nine. No, she wants what's hers. And she needs it. She, so she scours for it. In this parable, Jesus is the woman who's scouring for the coins. But then he moves to the third where there's two sons. And again, these three characters from the beginning suddenly are personified by the characters of the story. Once again, we, we, we very often, because in the character, in the story, it's the father, we, because we're Christians and we, th- and we have a person of the Trinity called the father, we, oh, this is the father, it's Jesus. The characters remain consistent. There's the sinners, the religious leaders, and there's Jesus, okay? And he tells this powerful story of two brothers. And upon first hearing, you think it's first been 1% loss, then it was a 10% loss, but now it's a 50% loss because one of the sons leaves. But then you see really, truly, that this is a, Father who has experienced really a 100% loss. But that doesn't change him nor dissuade him. He loves. And it's this love that is marvelous. So you know the story. 
The younger son, he takes up the portion of the story from verses 12 through 24. A truly despicable person. It's, you, you cannot understand this, this parable without doing some serious work to put your mind into the mind of an ancient Near Eastern patriarchal society. Okay, we live in a culture that's free with our emotions. It's, okay, no, wrong cultural perspective. Uh, I, I can't, we're so shameless, I, I can't, Imagine whatever behavior you think would bring just shock and, and shame upon you, and then imagine that you're being asked to perform it. I, I, don't, I don't know how to communicate to people who grew up in a society with, with no shame at being shameless, and Garth Brooks celebrated about it. You know, I'm shameless. I'll do whatever. Most people and cultures in the world are not shameless. In fact, their honor and dignity is more important than life itself. But to understand this story, Jesus tells a story that the initial gut response of everybody who would have heard it to all three of the characters would have been astonishment and, and scandal. Why? Because one, the younger son, in verses 12 through 24, he's despicable. Absolutely despicable. And, and you know, he's, he's asking basically for his inheritance now. He's essentially telling his father, I wish you were dead. Who here has the nerve to go tell... This, this is not one of these modern situations where I don't want my kids to fight, so I'll go ahead and just give it to them now. No, no, that's not it. How many... We know it's despicable for someone to say, give me my inheritance now. Especially in a culture where it wasn't like the inheritance was in a bank account. He would have had to have sold off his property. He, huge, permanent financial loss for the father. Those are the facts. This kid is despicably selfish. Utterly disregarding tradition, utterly disregarding his family, utterly disregarding his God, everything. He's an absolute self-absorbed little creep. To say to, to even have the nerve in that culture to go tell his father, give me my inheritance. I mean, he, he, he risked getting thrown out with nothing. But he was brazen. And as the SAS say, he who dares wins. So he does it. And lo and behold, the father honors the request. Nobody would have thought that was a reasonable thing to do. What? But then, of course, the predictable happens. The, this, this, this little creep goes off, and he just absolutely squanders his money. He's like so many privates I encountered in the army who got this massive bonus for enlisting, and within months it was gone. I remember this family. This family had their soldier die. They got a half million dollars. 30 calendar days later, it was gone. And they, were, they had the nerve to complain, to try to get the media involved, like the army wasn't taking care of them. No, 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 you got your money. And you guys blew it. He blows it. And of course, you got to eat. I don't know how hungry you've ever been, but hunger will drive a person insane. I'm not talking about, oh, I haven't eaten in a couple days. Hunger will drive a person crazy. 
and he knows I've got to eat. And so he hires himself out. He's utterly degraded in some foreign land working with pigs. I mean, everybody in the audience is going, this is, one, this is what you get, but two, man, this is terrible. And he's, he's not even allowed to eat pig slop. You, can, you know you're hungry when pig slop looks appetizing, right? I mean, I've seen what you feed pigs. I've never, I don't want to eat that. I cannot imagine being so hungry that I'm looking enviously at pig slop. Then he comes to himself. Now, what, what's amazing here is he goes back to his father, not so much impelled by love of the father. No, he's, he's desperate. But he's come to himself enough to realize that my father's servants have enough. And he knows his father enough to know that there's a chance. There's a chance. But not in his mind at all is the thought of reconciling to his father as a son. Not in his mind at all is restoring his place in the family. He's hoping at best that his father will show pity on his miserable state and give him something to eat and maybe a job. So he comes back, and then the true scandal happens. The true scandal happens in verse 15 when it says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's when this story gets offensively scandalous because a dignified gentleman would rather die than run. And this man has, is pictured as having kept his eye on the horizon and at first sight of his son, he behaves in an absolutely scandalous manner. You're, you're going back out you're willing to even receive, and then you're running? Can you imagine this, this rich Middle Eastern gentleman grabbing his man dress, lifting it up and holding it in two hands, and running to go meet his son? I mean, it's an undignified look, and it meant undignity in that culture, but he doesn't care. Now, in our ears, so what? We would run. He's my son, by the way. No, you have a picture, and that... Middle Eastern, ancient Near Eastern culture, honor means everything. And, and, if you, and if you mess with the family and cross the lines, you're dead to the family. And that was the culture. I mean, you bring shame on someone even to this day in the Middle East and you're likely to die. That's the culture. They weren't sentimental like Americans. But the father nonetheless defies every expectation and norm and runs out and receives the younger brother. And you know the story. The younger brother doesn't even get to repeat his, re, his re, re prepared speech. The father receives him and just weeps and embraces him. And welcomes him back. Doesn't, doesn't even let him say, let me just be a servant. No, he receives him back. And the younger story fades from the picture having been welcomed back into the family by the father, celebrated. And now the attention turns to the third person in the story, the older brother, who's out working in the fields. 
And when he hears the news, you know he's, he's livid. But once again, the father comes out. Defying convention, the father comes out. He seeks out the older brother and he entreats him. Do you know what entreat means? He, he begs him. This is a patriarchal society. The father has commanded that there be a feast. Who, who, who on earth does this son think he is? And yet the father, despite the older son acting inappropriate, comes out and begs. Fathers don't beg their sons in that culture. He says, he commands, and it, and it gets done, or else there's anger. That's the way it goes. And he begs. And this, this older brother, he's, man, he's livid. He sees himself as a slave. That, that's why I, I put it here. All these years I've served you. And that word is translated correctly in a few versions, or slaved for you. I've slaved away for you. Do you see the Pharisees in this? They've been slaving away for God. Slaving. It's not the loving service of a, of a person who's received grace. It's someone who is trying to earn something. In fact, what's he trying to earn? He says, and I never disobeyed your command. Well, you kind of just did, but whatever. These many years I've done this and you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate. In other words, I've been slaving away, doing every little thing you've said, and you've never once accepted me. You've never once given me anything. See how bitter he is. This son of yours comes back and you throw a feast. It's interesting how people never change. We still do that all the time. This, you know, I'll come home. These boys of yours, oh, so they're my boys now. <laughs> so we do it. So people have always done it. Isn't that, in, anyway, finds, I find great consolation that, that I'm not that different. Anyway, so, but the father corrects him, doesn't he? This, this brother, he's your brother, brother. It was fitting. You know, everything that I, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours. So the older brother, because of his mindset, had totally misread the situation, misread his father's attitude and disposition. Everything was already there. The father loved him and had accepted him already. And because of his attitude, he was living in, in, utter, in utter bitterness, resentment, not enjoying any of his father's favors or graces, not because the father hadn't given it, but because he wasn't seeing and receiving it. But it was fitting 
Because your brother was dead and is alive, he was lost and is found. Okay. This passage shows a father who is actually consistent throughout the whole thing. He is loving to his sons. The son who wanders off, he defies social convention and receives back. The the older son who hasn't left but has never been connected at all, he goes out and he seeks and he begs and he speaks tenderly to and he tries to win. He shows love to both. You see, in this passage, we are given a picture of the scandalous, the scandalous degree to which God will go to show his love for us. You have an older brother who's been estranged from the father all along, though he never left. His estrangement has taken the form of a resentment and bitterness. And you have a younger brother whose estrangement takes the form of actually leaving and engaging in gross open immorality. But through it all, the father loves, he seeks, and he celebrates. Whether your sin looks like the brazen, open rebellion or whether your sin looks like the quiet simmering of a religious person. God loves you. Jesus loves you. That's scandalous. And how does this matter with sola gratia? Because if sola gratia is not true, if salvation is not by grace alone, then this picture here makes no sense. Because if the Pharisees really, really are on the correct side of things, that in order to receive grace, you have to show your worthiness. You have to pitch in. You have to do your 1%. If salvation is not all of grace then the Pharisees are correct in that God's love is therefore contingent. But we see here that God's love is wild, open, and free. It's not contingent upon their behavior. God's love is for his children. God's love is not dependent upon your behavior. Your enjoyment of God's love may be But his love for you is not. And his love is grounded in his decree to save you, to lavish grace upon you. And just like salvation is by grace alone in them coming to Jesus, God's love that is lavished on you and his willingness to send his son for you is not, you have nothing to add to that, nothing to contribute to that. All of grace. So stand in wonder and awe at the marvelous love of God that is the backbone behind 
why your salvation truly is uncontingently based upon anything. It is nothing but free grace start to finish. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this beautiful picture of your scandalous love that is not based upon anything. Our behavior does not result in you loving us more, nor does it result in you loving us less. Our behavior contributes nothing. It does not incline you or disincline you to showing us grace. You give us grace because you are loving. And you have set your love upon us and we marvel. We ask that you would encourage us with your love. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.